We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. I'm excited. Um, I have been excited for months about this series. I have been looking forward to the series that we begin this morning for a long, long time. We are opening the Bible this morning, and we're going to begin a seven-week study on one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture, a man by the name of Elijah. If you haven't already done so, would you take your copy of God's Word and join me in turning to 1 Kings chapter 17. We're going to be in the first 16 verses this morning as we begin our study together. But while you're taking a moment to turn there, every one of you has a name. You have a last name uh, that probably had no choice. But you have a first name that someone gave you. Someone decided to name you whatever it is that you were named. How many of you in here know why you receive the first name that you have? Is there a meaning behind it? Maybe your parents just went through a baby book and decided they liked the sound of your name, or maybe it's a family name, or maybe it has a reason or a meaning behind it, but names have meaning. There is a reason that we are named certain things. And today we certainly see that, but ancient times names meant a great deal. Um, now, my name in particular, you may be wondering, um, I was born before they were able to tell whether there was going to be a boy or a girl when someone was born. And so I pick on my parents, uh, they went to the hospital and they had a girl's name picked out, but they didn't even think to pick out a boy's name. Um, so I was born and they waited an entire day to name me. And I guess because they had to leave the hospital, they thought, well, I guess we'll just give him his dad's name. So I am Larry Wayne LeBlanc II, all right? That is my name. Now, you may be asking, uh, shouldn't you be junior if your dad is Larry Wayne LeBlanc? My dad declared that I was going to be the second because no one was calling me junior growing up, and that is why I'm a second and not a junior. Names have meaning. One of the greatest names in all of the Bible is the name Elijah. And the reason I tell you it's one of the greatest names in all of the Bible is the word Elijah means my God is Yahweh. My God is Yahweh. Now, as we study over this series, but especially this morning, I want you to pay very careful attention to the names that we're going to encounter because those names have significant meaning and they even have a meaning to the narrative as we walk through it this morning. But before we stand together and read, I want to set the stage for you so you'll know what happens when Elijah steps onto the scene. First of all, Elijah appears out of the blue. He's never been mentioned before. We've never heard of him before. We don't know anything of his background. We don't know anything of his upbringing other than that Elijah was a Tishbite, which means he was from Tishbe. And all we know about that place was that it was rough and rugged terrain, that it was a place that would have produced a rough and tumble group of people. It would have been a country place, a place that was out in the woods, and that is where Elijah steps from. But he doesn't just step from that place, he steps to a place, and you need to know about the place that he stepped to. Now, let's try to set a little bit of history. You can remember back in Samuel that Israel had moved into the promised land and they began to look at the lands around them and they asked for a king. Now God had told them, you don't need a king because you have a king, I'm your king. But God allowed them to have a king and he granted them a king and Israel's first king was who? Saul. 
Saul ruled, but what we know about Saul is that Saul did not have a heart that was completely committed to the Lord. So God raised up a man who had a heart for the Lord. And so the second king of Israel was a man by the name of David. David was succeeded by his son, a man named Solomon. Now for over a hundred years, those three men ruled one nation, Israel, all together. But because Solomon took on foreign wives and we saw that Israel began to prostitute themselves and worship to other deities, there was punishment and the kingdom was split. So when the kingdom was split, ten tribes went to the north and that became known as Israel and two of the tribes were in the south and that's what was known as Judah. What we're going to be studying over the next seven weeks is in the nation of Israel or the northern kingdom. Now in the northern kingdom alone, they had a grand total of 19 kings. And out of those 19 kings, does anybody know how many of those were righteous? How many of those were godly? How many of those followed the precepts of the Lord? Out of the 19, how many did we have in Israel or the northern kingdom? If you guessed zero, you guessed exactly right. They were a nation plagued by wickedness, which is the reason they were the first to be destroyed and those Jews would be deported into Babylon. But of those 19 kings, we can't find a righteous one, but we can find many examples of wicked ones. But the most wicked of all of the 19 was a man by the name of Ahab. And one of the reasons that he was so wicked was because he married a woman by the name of Jezebel. Jezebel was from a place called Sidon, and he married her as a foreign princess, and she brought her God, she brought her religion with her to Israel, and Israel began to worship something called Baal. Now, if you've studied the Bible at all, you have seen Baal. In fact, Baal has become the quintessential name of false idolatry. But the name Baal has a meaning too. I told you that Elijah had a name. His name had meaning. Baal has a meaning as well. And the name Baal actually means master, owner, or possessor. When we talk about false worship, we talked about we sometimes think about people being infused with the devil or being demonically possessed. When we think about Baal worship, it is what Israel has invited into their heart. The reason Baal was worshipped as the supreme god is he was seen as the god of weather, the god of crops, the god of fertility. And so when Kings was written, you need to remember who it was written to. If I know who someone writes a letter to, or some, I, that helps me to understand. Kings was written when Israel was in Babylonian captivity so that they'd be encouraged to remember that they have an omnipotent, an all-powerful God who has delivered in major ways in their past and what he's done in the past he can do again. And sometimes when people are in trying and difficult times, they need to be reminded, amen, who God has been in the past, that that God is alive and that God is well now. So with that being said, this Tishbite name Elijah steps onto the scene and we begin this incredible narrative together as we walk and see what humble heroism truly looks like. Would you stand with me and we'll read the Word of God. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives whom I serve, there will be neither rain nor dew in the next few years except at my word. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. 
So he did what the Lord had told him, and he went to the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the, Lord, until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. And she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Lord, teach us that serving the all-powerful God gives us faith that you control and sustain our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And you'll see that is our big idea that's going to drive us this morning, that serving the all-powerful God gives us faith that He controls and sustains our lives. Let's find out how this morning as we walk through this passage together. First of all, look with me at verse 1. When Elijah shows up onto the scene, he comes out of nowhere and he goes to the most powerful man in the world. He goes to Ahab, the most wicked king that has ever ruled in Israel. And he says very clearly, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, there will be neither dew nor rain in the land that is coming. You see, Elijah approaches this situation, this circumstance with a supreme confidence in the Lord. He has a confidence in the Lord. He understands that his God is a living God. We need to understand today, your God, he's alive. Your God is risen. Your God is active. Just as he spoke into this situation, he speaks into the situation of our lives as well. And he makes this promise he says, as surely as God lives, there's going to be no dew and there's going to be no rain for the years that are to come. Elijah is making the claim that if it rains in the next years to come without my declaring it, then there is no God. That's a bold statement. I am so certain of what God has told me about what is going to take place because He is going to bring judgment on this land that I am so sure that I make you a promise that if a drop of rain falls, that God doesn't exist. That's a powerful promise. The way we know that is because that in Elijah's life, 
The, the Bible tells us that it did not rain for three years. But we're actually told in Luke chapter 4 that it didn't rain for three and a half years. So what we know is that Elijah had seen that it had already not rained for six months up until the point that he has this conversation with Ahab. We know that Elijah has been praying for this because we're told that in James chapter 5 that Elijah prayed that it would not rain. This was a righteous man who had God's glory on his heart and the desire of the Lord in his soul. And so he goes before and he's prayed for this and God has answered the prayer and God has directed Elijah. And he goes before him and what is so fascinating about this prediction is it goes right at the heart of the apostasy of the nation. Do you remember I told you that Baal, that name had a meaning, master and owner and possessor. But they believed that Baal was the god of the weather. That Baal is the one that produced the crops because he controlled the weather. So if you wanted to run the gauntlet, if you wanted to throw down, if you wanted to start a war, if you wanted to declare that there is one god and that Baal is not him, the one claim that you could make was that your god does not control the rain, but my god controls it all. So when Elijah steps before Ahab, he opens up the fight. And so when he does this, he says, I want you to know that not only is he the living God, but this is the God who I serve. He made no, there was no doubt about it. There was no compromise in his life. We need to understand that we need more people who can't be bought for a price. And I'm not just talking about preachers. That's true too. We have a lot of people who sell out, who are willing to preach what masses want to hear and what tickling ears want to hear. And that's a separate problem. But I'm talking about lay people. I'm talking about junior high and high school students and college students and people at work that don't have a price on your head. that aren't willing just to do what the crowd does and say what people want to hear and go to the places that you know people are going to be gathered. But you're willing to say, I serve God and I stand here and come what may, I don't care because I'm willing to be bold and courageous before the Lord because He and He alone is worthy. But something else about this that we need to take note of there is prophecy and there is false prophecy. We have many, many, many false prophets in our day. And one of the reasons that we can know that someone is a false prophet is that if you tell me that God told you something was going to happen and it doesn't happen, either God lied or you lied. God does not lie so what that means is, is that many of the people we see in quote-unquote in ministry today that are claiming to be prophets of God are of Baal. They are not possessed of God, but they're possessed of something else. I, I think about certain things that many of you have heard over the past years, even when it came to regards to, to COVID and other issues about people making declarations that didn't come true. If someone makes a declaration and it does not come true, that is not of God. We need to be aware, not only of false prophecy, but we need to be aware when people make this claim. Often people would say, God told me, or I heard God say, or the Holy Spirit moved me. Now there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But can I give you a, a suggestion? Look at me this morning. You need to get one of these. They're incredible. You, you really need to, in fact, you ought to get several of them. But you ought to have at least one and you ought to use it. 
And here's the reason why. When someone declares that the Lord spoke to him, I'm going to Scripture, and I want to know, does the Bible match up with what that leadership is, with what that declaration is? And if not, then we can always and only trust the Bible. You see, God is looking for people like Elijah that are willing to be bold and willing to be courageous. And sometimes I think we're surprised that God really does want to use us. We live in a world in which we hear so much about social media influencers and and people that make impacts and seeing who it is that's on the world stage that I think sometimes that we can be deceived by Baal himself, by a master and possessor for you to believe that God doesn't want to use you. And it is an absolute lie from the pit of hell. God is not interested in only using people with Ivy League educations, people that only have pedigrees and resumes, and people that only have all of this experience. What we need to know that there's always going to be a man from Tishbe, a man who is called out of nowhere with nothing about his resume that would indicate that he should be the one that God would use. God's looking for people like that. He's looking for people like you. And history is filled with people that would say, I don't know why God wanted to use me. I don't have any special talents. I'm not all that bright. I'm not the best looking. I don't have all the experience. I don't have the education. Guess what? That's the people that God uses. Those are the Elijahs of Scripture. That's you and that's me. Thank God He doesn't just use influencers. That He uses normal, regular old, everyday people like you and me to do His work. That's why we have confidence in the Lord. But one of the reasons we have confidence in the Lord is because of the preparation by the Lord. The preparation by the Lord. Look at the next few verses. It said the word came to Elijah and to leave and go hide in the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan. You're going to drink from the brook and I'm going to feed you by ravens. Elijah now goes from being a bold prophet to being on the run. I spent a lot of time on that command. Because I guess we all do, but I struggle with pride. And I wouldn't have done well with this command. I'm just being honest with you. I just had my moment in the sun. I just told this king what was up. I just took on Baal. I just spoke in your name. I just had my greatest moment in ministry. Yeah, I'm ready. Front lines. Captain of the guard. I just showed up and showed out. Let's go to battle. And then God says, I want you to go run off and hide. No. Hold on a minute. We've just started this war. I've got to finish it. God says, go, go hide. And the Lord has convinced me of something, and I want you to hear this and hear it well. There are too many people that want to run headlong in a ministry-related task without being prepared for it. And without preparation, you will fail and you will fail miserably. And it is that God wants to take us to Kareth's. I told you that, that names are important. And, and what does the name Kareth mean? The word careth actually means cut off. I want you to go to a place where you are going to be cut off. And I read this and I thought, I don't know, God. How lonely must that have been? You're all by yourself. You're separated from your family. You're all alone and you're standing there. And and while you're there in the midst of that, there's no one to talk to and no one around. And I wonder how any of us would do in a day like that. We're surrounded by noise and we're surrounded by chatter. And even when people aren't around, we're so connected and our phones are right there. I wonder what it would be like. And I would tell you that I'm convinced 
That one of the reasons that so many of us are not as spiritually prepared as we ought to be is we have thrown away silence and solitude as spiritual disciplines. That God wants to take us to a careth. He wants to take us to a cutoff place. That He wants to have time where you're not talking to everybody else, where you're not spending time with everybody else, where you're not pleasing everybody else, where you're not plugged in with everybody else. And He wants to take you to careth so He can cut you off and have you all to Himself. And you say, well, I don't know if I can handle it. If you're going to be prepared for what God has in store for you, and I'm telling you, he's got some great things, but he also has some very challenging things in store. You better learn to go to Kareth. You better learn what it is to be cut off and know what it is because God has work to do in you. He had to, to build Elijah's faith. He had to, to build in him his strength. He had to build in Elijah all of the, the humility that was going to bring about the heroism later. But we don't want to do any of that. We live in a world where we want instant fame, instant success, instant wealth, instant power. That word instant kept coming up in my mind. So I went to my pantry this week to see if what I could find with the word instant on it. If you come to my house this afternoon, I can fix you instant rice in five minutes. I can fix you instant oatmeal in a minute and 30 seconds. And I can make you instant grits all in two minutes. And I kind of smiled as I was looking around at all the instant things we have. And I realized we live in an instant culture. But I want to share with you something I think is very important. Spiritual maturity is not instant. Sometimes I think one of the ways that we err is that someone gives their life to Jesus or even comes and says they want to serve the church and we immediately move them to a place of leadership when we haven't taken the time to let God move in them. And sometimes we get frustrated with people, but God's been teaching me over the years that we've got to be patient, right? Because thank God He was patient with me. And so we see this preparation that takes place by the Lord, that it takes time, that He's getting him ready. And we also see that He moves him from Ahab to Cherith, and then in a moment we're going to see he moves him to Zarephath. Move after move after move. But do you know the way that he does it? Let me back up a little bit, because let me tell you the way I want him to do things. God's never done this. Keep asking him. You'd think after 42 years, I'd get it, but I'm, I'm dense. See, how I want God to play out, the story would look something like this. That right after he stepped out of Tishbe. And, and before he confronted Ahab, God said, come over here, I want to talk to you a minute. You know, you and I are close. We've gotten close over the years, so I just want to tell you how this is going to work out. You're going to go in front of Ahab, and you're going to make this declaration. And then I'm going to send you on the run, and you're going to go to Kareth. And then after that, the brook's going to dry up, and I'm going to... I'm going to send you from there to Zarephath. And then you're going to prepare there, and after that you're going to see Ahab again, and there's going to be a showdown. But that's not the way any of that worked out. All God told him was one step at a time. Friends, we've got to do better about trusting God for what He has shown us today. God has given you one thing to do, one day at a time, one step at a time. We've got to be faithful with what God's placed in front of us right now. If you're in the seventh grade or whether or not you are 
47 years old and you're living your life, your work life, He has given you a responsibility and a job to do that is in front of you right now. Do a good job with that and follow Him and the next step will come and you'll have to trust Him then. It's one step at a time. But Elijah has no choice but to wait on God. The only thing he could do was wait and see what God was going to do. And God does some incredible things. Philippians 4.19 says that He supplies our needs. I thought about this. I had to stop this week. Because I recognize in my life, not only is pride a problem, but I can be really selfish and self-absorbed. And sometimes I'm not as thankful as I ought to be. Talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicted me that in the midst of this, I realized something. That in the entirety of my life, my entire life, do you know that I've never been hungry? Now, when I say hungry, I don't mean that I hadn't been ready for a meal. That's happened a lot. It's happening to some of you right now. But I mean, I've never not had, I've never not had food when I needed it. My whole life, I've had a roof over my head. My whole life, I've had every basic necessity that I could possibly want and definitely need. And so I look back over that and I recognize that Elijah was forced to see that everything that he had, every provision came from the Lord. And so he goes down to this little brook and there's something natural that's happening and there's something supernatural that's happening. He goes down to this brook at Cherith and he's drinking the water out of the brook and, and that's a natural thing. And the reason we know that's natural is because the brook dried up when everything else dried up, right? But what wasn't natural is that twice a day, ravens showed up with meat and bread to feed him. And I kind of got caught up on that. Because God could have fed him any way he wanted to, couldn't he? He could have sent prophets into the wilderness to bring him food. Could have brought some picnic baskets out there. He could have supernaturally rained it from heaven. That's what he did in the Exodus and when the manna fell. He could have given Elijah the power to be able to touch stones and then turn to bread if that's what he had wanted to do. But that's not how he did it. He brought it by ravens. So this sent me down a rabbit trail, and I, and I looked up ravens. Did you know that ravens in the Old Testament are an unclean animal? They weren't even fit to eat. You couldn't, even, you couldn't allow them to touch your food. And yet, God uses the ravens to bring the food to Elijah. Now, I'm just put, trying to put myself in Elijah's shoes. And think about this for a moment. If Elijah was told, I want you to think of the ways that you think God is going to feed you while you're out by this brook. I can think of a thousand things that Elijah would have come up with. Well, maybe some of the things that we named. But God said, no, I'm not going to use any of those things. An unclean fowl of the air, I'm going to get to be a mail delivery system, and it's going to drop it off to you twice a day. Why would God do it that way? Because sometimes God provides in ways that are absolutely unimaginable to the human mind. And sometimes we need to quit putting limits on a limitless God and recognize that he's, His ways are higher than your ways, and He's going to do things better than you would do them. I can't tell you how many times in my prayer life I've told God, God, I think this is what you ought to do. Would you just bless it? And then time goes by and I bow my knees and I say, oh God, thank you for not doing it my way. Thank you for bringing ravens instead of doing it the way I wanted you to do because every day, twice a day, when those ravens would fly in, Elijah had to look up to the sky and I had to have to think that every time he had to smile and maybe he just shook his head and he probably with a sense of humor said, really God, ravens. That's how you're going to do this. When you think something's impossible, it's just opened up a door of opportunity for the Lord. 
And so he's fed this way in an incredible way. He had no choice but to wait on the Lord. And then we see that in the midst of this, verse 5, it says, He did what the Lord told him to do. You can have confidence in the Lord. You can be prepared by the Lord. But you better have obedience to the Lord. Don't ignore your part of the equation. If God tells you you should do something, then you have to do it. That seems simple enough. But we live in a day in which people want God to bless their lives, but they want to live in disobedience. So if God shows you through Scripture that your life needs to change, that your attitude needs to change, that something in your life needs to change, and you don't do it, that's called disobedience. But what is so interesting is, in a world in which people want to live how they want to live, and then God asks God to bless them, you can't be blessed of God if you're not in obedience to God. Now, I know what some of you were thinking, so let me handle the objection. Oh, I know plenty of wicked people who are prospering. If your definition of prospering is a bank account, then you're exactly right, because he rains, it rains on the just and the unjust. What I'm talking about is not material prosperity. I'm talking about that you can't walk in the ways of God and enjoy sweet fellowship and communion with God if you're not in obedience to God. And so you say, well, Larry, I want to be obedient, but how do I know what God wants from me? How do I know how to be obedient to God? That's a great question. It's a simple answer, but it's a great question. I think sometimes we live in a time in which people are looking for something mystical. They're looking for something magical. And it's so, so simple. Do you remember a little while ago when I told you you ought to get you one of these? There are two ways in which you are going to find out what God's will is for your life. Two ways. The Bible and prayer. The Bible and prayer. Now let me back up for just a moment, because some of you may be saying, now wait a minute, Larry. If I was like Elijah and God told me directly, hey, I, I want you to go to Ahab. Hey, I want you to go to Kareth. Hey, I want you to go to Zarephath and do these things, then I would do them. Do you know that right now, you have more of God's will unveiled to you than Elijah had to him. How do I know that? Because you have the privilege to have one of these. You have the Bible, and God has given you that. So when we say the Bible and by prayer, certainly we hear people say, well, how did you know to do that, or why did you do that? And oftentimes people will say, well, I was just led by the Spirit. Be very careful when you hear that. Should you be led by the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. But how does the Holy Spirit lead an individual? The Holy Spirit leads an individual through the Word of God. If you want to be Spirit-led, then you need to be Bible-filled. Let me explain to you practically what I mean by that. The most Spirit-led people I have ever met in my life were the people who loved God's Word the most. The people who read and study the Word of God will be the ones who are also led by the Spirit. Confidence in the Lord, preparation by the Lord, obedience to the Lord, and then look at verse 7, change from the Lord. All of a sudden, it says sometime later, the brook dried up because there'd been no rain. There wasn't anything supernatural about this brook drying up other than that there was a drought. 
This brook dried up like every other brook dried up and every other creek dried up. And so the very thing that Elijah has prayed for has now come to fruition and now it's affected Elijah. And because this was natural, what we know is that probably as a month turned into a week, turned into days, and it went from being a smaller flow to a trickle to then one day Elijah looks up and it's nothing but dry rocks and a creek bed that sits in front of him. And the brook's dried up. And you say, well, couldn't God have made this brook continue to flow? Sure, he could have provided water from a rock. He's done that before. He could have done whatever he wanted, but God let the brook dry up. Why? Was he mad at Elijah? Absolutely not. And what we don't know, what we don't know is what Elijah's state of mind is. I thought about it and I couldn't help but think that probably what mine would have been. It would have taken me a while to get used to being out there. All alone, getting fed by ravens, drinking out of a brook. I probably would have been frustrated and angry and lonely for a little while. But I don't know exactly when this brook dried up, but if it's anything about like my life, it probably dried up about the time he was starting to like it out there. Probably about the time he was starting to get comfortable out there. Probably about the time he said, you know what, I like my little hunting camp out here. I like being away from everybody. I like being out here. And about that time, it trickled down to a stop. Because God will absolutely take you to a place where change is inevitable in your life. Brooks dry up all the time with jobs. Brooks dry up with relationships. Brooks dry up with finances. Brooks dry up with health. Brooks dry up with certain emotions in your life. And we shouldn't be surprised when these brooks dried up because they don't cancel God's plan and they're not a sign of God's disapproval. The reason that they dry up is very, very simple. So maybe you're fading on me. So come in close because you need... Th this is huge. This is, this is huge. The reason that brooks dry up in your life is that God wants you to trust the blesser, not the blessing. Now that's huge because so often in my life I am guilty. I'm confessing this before you. I'm guilty of trusting the blessing. In other words, I look at my life and I see the security that, that things have brought about. Maybe it's financial security or, or my home or my friends or the church I serve or the family that's around me. And, and that, that security that's brought about is from the blessings in my life. But you know as well as I do that sometimes things are ripped out from under you. Sometimes the brook dries up. And when the brook dries up, you're brought to a place where you realize, I can't trust, it wasn't the brook that I was trusting, it wasn't the creek that I was trusting, it wasn't the water that I was trusting, it isn't the ravens that I'm trusting, it's not the blessing, it's the blesser. And then we're forced to look at the person who's provided everything for us. Sometimes when change is brought to your life, it's not because God is mad at you, it's because he loves you and he's got to bring about a change if he's going to bring about more blessing in your life. Change is about the only constant that we experience. And when the change, when the brook dried up, that's when you have to move on. And move on, Elijah did. He had to go from Kareth to Zarephath. Zarephath is about 100, 100 miles west of Kareth. And he went there, but he went on a journey and it was a strange one. Because he had experienced the change from the Lord. But before he was ready, 
he was going to have to also experience the provision from the Lord. And so the provision of the Lord takes him to a Gentile in the land of Sidon, which is where Zarephath was. Now the reason that it's a big deal that it's a Gentile, not just to Elijah, but God is showing that He is now spreading His love far outside the bounds of Israel. And that, he is, that His edict about no rain wasn't just for Israel, that it affected everyone in the entire region because He's not a geographic God. He is the God of the entire universe. But it is that Elijah finds himself there to go to a poor wed- widow. Now what's fascinating about this is that now God's challenging him in a whole new way. It might have been palatable if he would have said, hey, Elijah, I want you to go to Zarephath and you need to take care of a widow who's there. But he says, no, no, no. You need to go to Zarephath and there's a widow there who's going to take care of you. Now let's talk about Zarephath for just a moment. I told you names had meaning. But before I tell you what the word Zarephath means, I want you to tell, tell you where Zarephath is. Zarephath is in Sidon. If you were paying attention when we walked through the background, I told you that there was somebody that was from Sidon. Her name? Jezebel. It is not accidental that God took Elijah and took him back to the very place where Jezebel was from. And while he takes him there, he is showing Elijah that he is the God of the very place that this apostasy and false religion started. And so he takes him back, and there in that place, God is working. And God is working in ways that you have no idea at times how he might be moving. Because when Elijah shows up, he's not been given this widow's driver's license. He doesn't know what she looks like. He doesn't know her name. He just walks up to the town. And he says, well, I guess I'll just try out the first widow that comes by. There's nothing else to do. So she walks up and he says, hey, you mind getting me a cup of water? She says, yes. He still doesn't know whether this is the one yet. So he says, let me push my luck. He says, "Uh, also, while you're getting me the water, you you mind getting me a piece of bread as well? And this woman uses the same words that Elijah had used. I don't know that this was his key, but it probably was. She said, as surely as your God lives. What had Elijah told Ahab? As surely as my God lives, it won't rain. I tend to think that that was probably the clue that said, this is the one. And then Elijah does something that to me, that seems absolutely ridiculous. Did you see this? He asked for water. He asked her for a piece of bread. I'm okay with that so far. But she says, oh, I don't have any bread. In fact, we're all about to die. This is about the most depressing comment in all of Scripture. I'm going, hey, I'm, I'm just going to get some sticks to go home and make a little fire. We're going to make a little cake of bread. And me and my son, we're going to eat the bread. Then we're going to curl up in the fetal position and just die in our hut. That's a depressing, you catch that? So on top of that, what does Elijah say? He says, well, before you cook him or you anything, bring me some bread. Of all the audacity in Scripture, don't make it for yourself. Make it for me and bring me a piece. And I I got stuck on that part. I was like, God, that doesn't even sound polite. That's certainly not Southern. Is it? You wouldn't do that. But Elijah has been called to push the very limits because what Elijah knows is, is her obedience will bring about more blessing than she has ever even thought about. And so Elijah makes this incredible promise to her with both of them 
having to have the understanding that sometimes things, and you know this, sometimes things get worse before they get better. So Elijah gets vulnerable. He gets to this place that's so hard for us to get. This widow has gotten vulnerable as well. And both of them had to be in a place where they were completely outside their comfort zones. But he said, I want you to know that there's going to be enough flour and there's going to be enough oil. I'll tell you the places the Bible is so convicting to me. Because in this moment, God could have easily, they show back up at the hut and there'd just be barrels of flour. That's kind of what I would like it to look like. Walk in and go, all right, look at this. There's three years worth of flour. Look at all the oil. We are hooked up. We don't have anything to worry about. Nope. Every day, there was just enough flour and just enough oil for that day. That's it. It reminds me of Israel in the wilderness. What did he tell them? Don't pick up manna for tomorrow. You'll get manna for tomorrow, tomorrow. You just get it today. And the reason for that, and I think we need to hear this. We live in a day where I don't think any of us in here right now are as in a bad a shape as this widow at Zarephath. None of you came in today and said, you know, after church today, I'm going to gather up some sticks and make a little fire, and then I'm going to make a little bit piece of bread, and then we're all going to curl up at the house and die of starvation. None of you, I don't think, are in. If you are in that situation, if you'll see one of our staff members after church, we'll try to help you out. I don't think you're there. And the reason I bring that up is sometimes I think because we're not there, when we do sit down at the Mexican place, when we do have our sandwich brought to us, when we do go home and fix something at our house and we sit down to eat, yes, we say a blessing, thank you God for this food. But when is the last time we really bowed our head and said the only reason I'm even having a bite is because God allowed it. The only reason there's anything in my refrigerator is because God's blessed me. The only reason that there's a dollar in my pocket to buy a hamburger is because God put it there. You don't take a bite of anything without it coming from the Lord. You said, no, I bought this. The only reason you have anything is because there's a God in heaven who allowed you to have it. See, we're tempted to think we could make it without him because we've got so much stuff. You can't make it a day. And I thought about this, this widow. You know, we've been talking a lot about Elijah. But how many people do you know a man shows up to your house and says, hey, give me a drink of water and cook me some bread, and by the way, I'm going to move in with you and your family. And all, the whole time I'm there, there are going to be some miracle groceries show up. And she says, sounds good to me. Come on to the house. That's odd. That, that's, that's weird. To me, that's weird. So I found myself, why was she so easily agreeable? I mean, didn't do any background checks, didn't call any references. Come on, here's why. She had no other options. There were no other alternatives. That was it. She said, if, if, if this doesn't work, I'm going to die, so I might as well try it. It was their only option but it was also their best option. Let me tell you something this morning. You only have one option. One. And his name is Jesus. Let me explain to you what I mean. 
it would be many, many centuries later that Jesus would find himself in a Samaritan village. And he would walk up to another woman at a well. And he would say, would you mind dipping in and giving me something to drink? And then he looked at the woman and this is what he told her. If you knew who I am, you would ask me for water because I can provide a living water and you will never thirst again. Two chapters later in the book of John, Jesus made another declaration. I am the bread of life. He who eats of me will never go hungry again. You see, friends, Jesus, he's your only option. But do you remember a little while ago I told you to smile? It's okay that Jesus is your only option. And do you know why? Because he's your best option. And when everything else has run dry, and when the brook has run dry, and when you find yourself on the run, and you find yourself not knowing what else to do, and change has been brought to your life, friends, I want you to know that you look to the sustainer, to the creator, and to the redeemer, and there you will find sustenance, not only for your physical life, but for your soul in a way that God and God alone wants to be your God. Would you stand with me? Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.